my goal here is not to convince people whether our immigration policies have to take a certain route. My goal here is for people to just kind of like open their minds to see things that are different. My name is Brenda Ibelis Piñero Carrasquillo. I am an attorney by trade. I made my legal studies in Puerto Rico, Cuba, and Belgium. And then because of a pro bono initiative I was developing in, in immigration in Puerto Rico, one thing led to another, and I found that there was a whole avenue to practice immigration at the South Texas border. If Americans could come to the border and see what you see, what do you think the reaction on them would be? I think it would be uh, a life-changing one. I think there's something that happens when when you see the very difficult conditions that these individuals are made to wait in. There's no access to portable water. There's no access to health care. If you're lucky, you have a hot meal that night. You live in a tent encampment. Um, you hear their stories about kidnapping, sexual assault, extortions, uh, um, mutilations, When you see it with your own eyes, I think there's a shift. Welcome, everyone, to another episode in Season 5 of the America the Bilingual podcast. I'm Steve Levine. You're about to hear my conversation with attorney Brenda Pinheiro, who is the director of programs for an asylum representation program on the Texas-Mexico border. The American Bar Association runs the program pro bono. Brenda let me know that she was not speaking on behalf of the ABA. This is her story. Like many people born and raised in Puerto Rico, Brenda has a strong faith. Although she's Lutheran rather than Catholic, that surprised me. So did her passion for jiu-jitsu and her description of her mother, made me wish I had known her. My mom had three jobs. She used to be a seamstress. And, and she took me to college when she was attending college at night. I, I keep that as, as one of the uh, fondest memories that I have from growing up. And I think that planted the seed for how education was such important um, and, and was prioritized throughout my life. How old were you? I was probably six or younger than that. I do remember that I also wanted to have my own notebook, and I felt like I, I can also learn and participate in class. Her eagerness in her mother's class carried over into her own classes. When I was growing up, teachers would always tell my mom, Ella es excelente, pero habla un montón. Right? Like she's excellent, but she talks a lot. And it's because I would, I would get bored because I would finish my assignments quite quickly. And then I would be like with my classmates and I'll be like, hey, can I help you out? What do you need? What questions do you have? They would come and be like, brinda silencio, por favor. Right? Like, stay quiet. When there was no one at home to watch her, Brenda's mom took her to the sewing factory. I do have memories of, of my sitting down under the table while my mom was sewing. At the factory? Yes. What was she sewing? Underwear. Do you remember the brand? 
I do not. But I do remember the machines. They were um, Singer machines. Singer Sewing Machine Company. Yes, yes. And there's a particular smell that oil has from those machines when you combine them with, like, fabric. It is a very um, particular smell that I if, I... if I ever smell it again, it would just take me back to those times. Is it a, a good smell for you? Yes, it is. It is. Besides Brenda's mom, there were teachers who made an all-important difference. When I was in eighth grade, I remember I had a teacher, an English teacher, Miss Benitez. And she would uh, encourage me to read poetry in English. And at the time, I didn't even know how to pronounce fiber and fever. To me, you would pronounce them the same, even though they might be written differently. Because the I in Spanish is pronounced like the E in English. But both Ms. Benitez and her ninth grade teacher the next year wanted Brenda to do public speaking in English. She said... No, like, I don't know enough English. I don't know if I can do this right. So they signed me up for a forensics league. And they met with me and with other students at the time on Saturdays. They did this uh, completely voluntarily. And they would coach us on how to speak English, how to pronunciate, enunciate, and how to practice our speeches. Brenda's first speech in English, which she memorized, was Nelson Mandela's first presidential address. And then my other speech in English was Frederick's Douglass address to a crowd on the 4th of July on what the Independence Day meant for people of color. There was another teacher who clearly had an impact on her. In my senior year, I took an AP English class with a wonderful woman, rest her soul, Sister Alice. Everybody was afraid of Sister Alice, right? She was this tiny woman, white hair, blue eyes, loved her cats. And if you knock on her door and she would ask in her office, like, who is it? And you would say, it's me. She would make you wait the entire afternoon because the right way to answer that question is, it is I. I guess I'd be waiting a long time, too. (laughs) Don't you dare like to push her cats aside to sit down because her cats belong in the shares and you didn't. She had this practice of putting books in different areas of the room and you would have to walk with an index card and just like write down what your preference was. And based on that, she would make you read the books that you chose and write a specific piece. I remember I had to write the story about a black man who was wrongfully charged for an act of violence that did not take place. Sister Alice gave me a 98, and that was quite an achievement for her class. You know, this this was something that touched my soul very deeply. Once I kind of realized, oh, wait, I want to write about this, then everything kind of like flowed very naturally. Why did that touch your soul? You know, I, I think because I have experienced life in a very particular way, being that I am a woman of color. And my father is a, it's a black man. Now that you're working on immigration for refugees 
and other immigrants. What perspective do you have having always been a U.S. citizen yourself? I think a very complex and at times heartbreaking one, because there's a lot of things that happen when you live at the borderlands. And I do consider Puerto Rico a borderland of the United States. Well, I understand my privilege and I recognize that I have certain liberties that unfortunately others do not have. I also am the recipient of racism and institutionalized racism and differential treatment as it relates to my movement in the United States. Brenda told me how, when she goes through ports of entry into the U.S., the agents often touch her hair. You know, when you go to the airport, that you go through that x-ray machine. So sometimes the, I guess the algorithms in the machine do not read curly hair the same way they read straight hair. And, you know, agents could just literally come and touch your hair. So I, I have to be very mindful of letting them know, like, hey, can you please change your gloves? I understand that you need to check my hair. But if you need to do this, change your gloves. And then I try to be very respectful. These are individuals who work under very, very tight time frames, very stressful situations, oftentimes without even meal breaks. I must admit, I wasn't aware that people with lots of hair, especially curly hair, were subject to more scrutiny. All of them uh, changed their gloves if I asked them to, right? But that also requires me to understand what are my rights. And that's where my privilege comes in. Because I am an educated woman, because I am an attorney, I am able to kind of like stand in my power and hold my ground in a very respectful way and ask, please change your gloves. And, you know, that delays the time that I have to go through checking. So I always have to be at the airport in advance because I am a woman of color and I have curly hair. Shortly after she graduated with her law degree and started giving pro bono presentations for the immigrant community in Puerto Rico, Brenda landed in Harlingen, Texas. I went through, a, through three rounds of interviews and then they offered me the job. I am a woman of faith, so I prayed a lot. And I felt like, well, Jesus, you know, if, if Harlingen has a Lutheran church and a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym, I, I'm down, I'll go. And I found both through Google, and then I just packed my bags and moved. me about your day-to-day work now. We are responsible for the largest immigration services model for detained populations in the nation for unaccompanied children and also for adults. Two out of five immigrants who come to the United States cross the South Texas border. And chances are that our office sees a big chunk of them. In an annual basis, we could serve anywhere between 22 to 26,000 clients. As director of programs, Brenda oversees all the services that her group provides, including legal representation and legal education services. We have a big team that goes and provides this Know Your Rights presentations, also known as charlas, 
at the detention facilities, both for adults and children. These are the guys who make sure that there is access to counsel and access to education for individuals who are facing the most difficult circumstances in their lives. We represent as attorneys of record a smaller portion of those 26,000 because we don't have capacity for all. Brenda explained that immigrants coming into the U.S. who are facing deportation have a right to an attorney, but the government doesn't pay for this. You have to pay it out of your own pocket, or that has to be provided by other means, and that's where we come in. As a nonprofit project of the American Bar Association, that's why we're able to provide our services pro bono. For those immigrants who are allowed to stay in the U.S., Brenda knows that's not where their story ends. My contention is immigration is also a public health issue. And if you're released in the community and you want to succeed in the community, like any other individual, you need some sort of support systems. So at the office, we have social workers and clinical counselors. In her operational role, Brenda works mainly behind the scenes. I make sure that those who are in the spotlight, whether that be court or be in a room with uh, tiny eyes looking at you to make sure that those who are at the spotlight can shine as bright as possible. Those tiny eyes being the eyes of children? Correct. Correct. In her own eyes, Brenda sees her work as exciting. Because it gives me the opportunity to have a, a foundation for us to impact as many people as possible. I work really long hours, (laughs) but, you know, I do it gladly because to me, this is a way of practicing law with humanity. I asked Brenda if she thought Americans had misconceptions about what went on at our southern border. I would say so. And I think out of fear, that people are coming to take from what we have when there are studies that show that if situations were safe in home country, many of these individuals would choose to remain in their home country. I think there's also the misconception that people who come might have criminal backgrounds. And while there are instances where people, unfortunately, have made wrong decisions in their past, it is very hard for me to accept that as a uniform fact. It is not like that, especially when you have babies who need to face an immigration judge without an attorney. And when I when I say babies, I mean three-month-olds, six-month-olds. They might not be physically present in the courtroom, but they are in removal in deportation proceedings. There may be a perception among Americans that the whole claiming asylum and refugee status may be overused, that people are are trying to come in unfairly claiming that status. What do you see? I see the opposite. These are individuals who have their own voice, their own autonomy, and they are, for the most part, equipped to tell their story, but the system does not allow them to do so. That's where my team comes in. We are a vessel to amplify a story. It's their story. It's their chance. Can you share a a story with us that stays in your mind? It was this young male from Mexico 
who witnessed his father being murdered by cartel members. The young man was kidnapped, Brenda told me, and had lost all contact with his family. He was 17. He was forced to smuggle people across the border because sometimes what cartel members do is they single out children and force them to either smuggle drugs or people. Or if you refuse, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to do horrible things to you and your family. And I was working with him and he turned 18. When you turn 18, you are considered an adult. So he was transferred to adult detention. And over the weekend, he decided to ask for voluntary departure. And um, I, I didn't know. I had already found an attorney who could represent him as an adult. And I found out through the deportation officer that he was placed in a bus and was taken across the border. It still stays with me. Then Brenda told me about another case that involved a young girl and her mother. She was seven years old from Honduras, and she came with her mom, but they were separated at the border by authorities. And her mom was placed in a detention facility in another state, and the girl was placed here. And I work in this case for 414 days, trying to get her reunified with mom. But as Brenda explained, the hurdles went well beyond logistics. You're talking to a seven-year-old who has abandonment issues because she thinks that mom doesn't want her anymore. She doesn't understand that mom was separated by government authorities and that mom is detained somewhere else. So all she thinks is my mom doesn't want me. She doesn't love me. She keeps sending me cards. And if I'm lucky, I hear her on the phone, but I don't see her. The little girl's mom could not afford a lawyer, so the odds were against her. But she won her case. And with Brenda's help... They were able to reunify. There was a third story Brenda shared. The time when a 14-year-old from Honduras recited Psalm 91. He had been released. He went through a, a very horrible time in home country where he almost lost his life. And um, he was trying to get reunified with a relative. And I worked with him. This was my first case. And I remember I asked him, hey, do you still have my business card? You're going to another state if you need to remain in contact with me. And I remember he said, si, mis, aquí lo tengo. En la Biblia, en el Salmo 91. Yes, miss, it's right here. It's in my Bible. It's where Psalm 91 is. And then he started reciting Psalm 91. Later, when Brenda got into her car, that's when I started bawling. I had prayed, um, and I asked God, is this the right path for me? Um, and, And I think my answer was confirmed there. Can you remind me which psalm that is? Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And this 14-year-old said that to you? Yes, he recited the entire song.
Brenda, my guess is that you could probably make a lot more money being an attorney in some other setting. Is that true? I think I could. <laughs> Why don't you go work for a fancy law firm and make a lot of money? Let me put it this way. This is a mission for me, right? Not to say that I don't want to earn more money because the more I have, the more I can give. Um, so I do aspire at earning more in order to be able to transform and impact my community broader and at a higher level. At home, we say, donde comen dos, comen tres, where two can eat, three can eat. I was raised to care and give my best in order to help the collective. That is very in my DNA. So I look for opportunities where I can collaborate with others rather than kind of like being a one woman show. I think the only time where I am a one woman show is if I am cooking alone in the kitchen and still I kind of record videos because I want to share with others what I am doing and what I've learned thanks to Gordon Ramsay and YouTube. So even then, I just I just want to spread and, and connect with people. Is your Spanish necessary to do what you do? I would say so. Depending on the client, because if I am representing a client from Russia, my Spanish is not going to help me that much. But if I am representing a client from Central America, I could perhaps develop a quicker report. There are access to interpretation services, though those are very challenging, especially for individuals who come from indigenous countries or indigenous backgrounds. So folks who come from Guatemala, for example, who speak Canjobal, Quiche, Chile, accessing Interpretation services for them is extremely challenging. There's just not enough interpreters and translation services, in which case building rapport and learning a story is very challenging. But there is a kind of workaround that Brenda has discovered. I think that the most important language that somebody needs to have to work in this field is the language of compassion, is the language of empathy. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Brenda Pinheiro. You might also want to read our episode notes on the America the Bilingual website. And you can read about other conversations with fascinating American bilinguals in my book, America's Bilingual Century, How Americans Are Giving the Gift of Bilingualism to Themselves, Their Loved Ones, and Their Country. Details are on the book page of the America the Bilingual website. My thanks to members of the America the Bilingual team who worked on this episode, Fernando Hernandez and Luis Raul Lopez, from their production house in Guadalajara, Mexico, Esto No Es Radio. They also provide sound design and mixing. Also to Mim Harrison, our editorial and brand director, who wrote and directed this episode, and Carla Hernandez at Daruma Tech, who manages our website. I also want to give a shout out to our friends at Middlebury Language Schools. If you're serious about gaining proficiency in another language, check out the Middlebury Language Immersion programs held every summer in Middlebury, Vermont. Thanks for listening for America the Bilingual. This is Steve Levine.